2014 was a hell of a year for Australian journalist Peter Grester. He spent all 12 months of 2014 in an Egyptian prison after he and two other Al Jazeera journalists were arrested by the government of former army chief Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Al-Sisi had seized power from the democratically elected Muslim Brotherhood government of Mohamed Morsi in mid-2013. On the 23rd of June 2014, Peter was sentenced to seven years in prison. But after a sustained international campaign, he was eventually released and deported after 400 days. As a veteran foreign correspondent who'd reported from places like Afghanistan, Serbia and Kenya for everyone from Reuters to CNN, the BBC and Al Jazeera, Peter Grester was no stranger to dangerous and highly politically charged situations. He won a Peabody Award, for example, for his documentary about Somalia. But becoming the story and facing many years in prison, well, that is something altogether different. Now, 2014 may be the year that springs to mind when I hear the name Peter Grester, but he's chosen a different one as the year that made him. Peter Grester, it's a great pleasure to welcome you into the studio for the year that made me. Thanks very much for having me, Julian. Yeah, 2014, I think, of more as the year that unmade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we will come to that. But before we find out which year you've chosen, Peter, could you just tell us a little bit at the beginning about your family background and your upbringing? Yeah, so my, my dad is a Latvian Australian. Um, my mum is Australian born. Um, I think that sort of refugee culture my, that my dad brought into the family really formed a, part, a big part of our upbringing. It was mm. always a part of the way that we understood and saw the world and a lot of the kind of habits that, that my father developed in the refugee camps around frugality and, and uh, you know, making most of things uh, was, was really a part of, the, a part of my upbringing. Um, yeah. yeah we, were, we were a pretty close family. So tell us a little bit about like where you grew up in Australia, but also like how that image of your father's experience loomed in terms of your upbringing. I think it didn't really, I didn't really appreciate how much it informed my mm. own worldview until I went abroad as a foreign correspondent and started to see the way that refugees actually lived and, and responded to what was happening to them. And then I started to see those elements that really were a part of my father's mentality that, um, and that he'd instilled in us start to come through. I understood how much of that was a part of our upbringing. So, you know, the, for a start, Dad was always very aware of, of world politics, of global politics. Radio National was a fixture on our... <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> bit of uh, undercover, undercover advertising here. You're but, allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he was... So he's very, very much aware of world affairs, of global politics. As I said, um, I've never known a man who never let a, a single thing go to waste like my father mm. did. Um, he was always making do with whatever we had around, around the family, around the home. And in fact, we set up, um, my parents bought this property um, up uh, west of, of in the Laidley Valley, uh, west of Brisbane. And we built this house that my dad designed. He's an architect and, and he created this house that we were able to build ourselves. And when I say ourselves, I mean literally me and my two mm. brothers and my parents put this thing together. Um, and it's this remarkable hodgepodge of, <laughs> of found objects and bits and pieces that have been salvaged from various houses around the place. Um, my dad is notorious for collecting bottles and so... Um, because he's just fascinated by the shapes and colours that bottles created. Mm. And, and, and so we have got this wonderful, eclectic, bizarre kind of house that, that we put together. And as I said, I, I, it was really only when I went abroad that I started to understand where all of these ideas, where all of these things actually came from. 
And had being a journalist been something that was in your mind from the early years? No, not at all. <laughs> so how did that in happen? Fact, well, it, in fact, it was the thing that, that was it, it was the thing that least turned me off. <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting at the end of year twelve, knowing that I wanted to go and study something. And and um, here in Queensland, you've got the QTAC form, the Queensland Tertiary Admissions Centre form that you had to fill out um, to nominate the course that you wanted to study. And there was this huge, big, fat book. Um, with all of the courses that you could do in the state. And I remember thinking, well, if I don't know what I do want to do, this was midnight before the form was due, mm-hmm. had not a clue what, the, what on earth I was, I was going to do and I decided to get rid of everything I didn't want to do to narrow the field. And <laughs> That's going to be a late night. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, well, that went very quickly because I started crossing things off. <laughs> Architecture, my dad's profession, no way. Accounting, uh-uh. Law, medicine, no. And I kept crossing and crossing and crossing. And the only thing that didn't actively turn me off was, <laughs> was journalism. Um, well, that was a fairly fateful uh, elimination process. And I think it brings us to the year that you've chosen as the year that made you. What year, Peter Grester, have you chosen and why? I've chosen 1995. Um, this was the year that I went to Afghanistan as the BBC's uh, Kabul correspondent. Um, and it was my first proper war. I'd, I'd covered Yugoslavia, the war, the breakup of Yugoslavia as a freelance, but that really was on the, on the periphery. I wasn't really immersed in that war. It was dipping my toe in, if you like. Um, but Afghanistan was, in, particularly in 1995, was an, an extraordinary experience. Mm. Professionally, um, personally, I learned more about myself and, and my job than, than at any other time before or since, I think. What did you learn about yourself? I learned that I was a lot stronger than I ever imagined. I, you know, Afghanistan was a very, very tough place back in 1995. It was a war between rival Mujahideen factions. You'll remember that after the Russians were forced out um, um, in 1989, the country slipped into civil war between the rival Mujahideen factions that had fought alongside oh. one another to, to push the Russians back, the Soviets back. And so we had these rival factions fighting over, literally over Kabul. There was a front line that ran right through the middle of the city at that point. And when I arrived at the beginning of the year, um, the Taliban was only just emerging. They just formed the previous year and, and, and uh, they were starting to assert control over Kandahar in the far south of the country, but they hadn't really moved anywhere. And so in 1995, they started to push forward and, and lay siege to the city itself, to Kabul. But all of this was taking place largely out of out of the public eye. Nobody really understood what was taking mm. place there, or if they understood, they really didn't care about it. There were only three foreign correspondents based in Kabul at the time. There was myself, and I covered both for Reuters and the BBC, and a whole bunch of other freelance strings. There was one guy who worked for Asian France Press, the, the French news agency, and there was another correspondent who was another freelance who worked for an Associated Press and um, Voice of America mm. and a whole bunch of others. So between the three of us, we, we literally controlled the world's understanding of, of Afghanistan. Um, and so it was incredibly well undercovered. Um, <laughs> people really didn't care about And I remember in the job application, job interview, saying that um, when I was asked why, why we should be covering Afghanistan at all, I said, look, Afghanistan is the world's biggest supplier of the two things that concern the West the most, and that's narcotics and Islamic extremism. Mm. Um, well, neither of those stories has gone away <laughs> since then. Uh, and Peter, in what ways was your personal strength tested during that year of 1995? You know, it was the thing that... So Afghanistan tested me both in terms of... Because you had to operate on the front lines. You mm. couldn't not 
work around the front lines. And so it was a physical challenge, working, um, trying to fig- figure out how to operate across the front lines, and particularly as a white guy in a country full of um, generally fairly hev- heavily bearded uh, brown-skinned blokes, I always stood out like a sore thumb. Mm. Um, and so we had to work out how to not just operate but survive on those front lines. Um, and that was a very, very dangerous proposition. And in the end, we decided, or I decided, that we had to cross the front lines whenever we had the opportunity to speak to both sides because... Um, and I saw that very much as a matter of personal survival um, as much as a, a, a matter of journalistic integrity mm. because I figured that I was always going... If I was going to be on the front lines, I was always going to be in the rifle sights of some guy on the other side. And I didn't want that guy to figure that, to, to think that there was a reason to pull the trigger. And so I felt that whenever the front lines had stabilised enough, they'd calmed down enough to risk crossing the lines, I'd have a word to the commander on the side that we were on and I would tell him that we were going to go across. Um, and we would gingerly cross those lines and speak to, mm. speak to the guys on the other side. And made, I made it very, very clear that we were always impartial, we were always not uh, non-participants in this conflict, that we were always going to give voice to everybody involved. And even though I know a lot of the militants, a lot of the faction, the faction leaders didn't like what we were doing, I felt that we got some respect for that. On the year that made me, we're speaking with veteran Australian journalist Peter Grester. And, and Peter, that's a very vivid uh, thought, crossing the front lines of a war in Afghanistan. It clearly exposed you to physical danger and, and fear. I suppose it, it leads me to wonder, does exposure to that sort of fear and learning that you're stronger in certain ways, does that prepare you for the different type of fear that you had when you were arrested and facing a long term of detention in Egypt? I didn't see it that way at the time that I was in Egypt. And I guess there is a certain um, psychological approach to the world that, that helped uh, in Egypt. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that I realised in Egypt was that the threat was very internal. Mm. Um, in places like Afghanistan on other front lines that I've worked, the threat was always external. It was from someone else with a gun um, or a landmine or something. Whereas in Afghanistan, sorry, in Egypt, even though I was there and because others had put me there and my colleagues, the biggest threat was really in my own head. The whole point of prison is to mess with your head. We, we, and for a whole bunch of reasons, we weren't being physically abused in in, in Egypt. Um, and I think that was largely because of a lot of the, the the campaigning that was going on. The Egyptians felt that they had to treat us um, a little better than a lot of the others that I saw. And so we had basic food and water. It wasn't always great, but it was enough to to survive on. Um, and in that environment, I realised that the greatest danger was from my own head it was it was i could see the way that that isolation that incarceration and that in a lot of cases a solitary confinement was messing was literally encouraging or forcing prisoners to 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 turn in on themselves Mm. um and i think it was that kind of understanding that realization that i had to deal with my own demons that was the thing that got me through and when did you feel that it would get you through? Was there a sort of dark period where you weren't sure? Oh, there, was, there were a lot of dark periods yeah. when, I, when I wasn't sure. sure yeah. um, 
and, and in a lot of cases, a lot of the time, we, we thought that we were going to get through this very quickly. Um, in fact, one of the things I realised was that hope was, was the greatest threat, was the greatest danger. Mm. Um, because hope is the cross your fingers strategy. And we always hoped very early on that, that this thing would be over relatively quickly, that we would be released as soon as um, the investigators realised there was no evidence here. We hoped that the trial judge would toss the whole case out of court when it was, when, when it was plain that this thing was ridiculous mm. and based on a folly. We hoped that the international campaign would push the court to make the right decision and, 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 and acquit us. When it, at each of these stages, hope was dashed and, and it was that dashing of hope that became really corrosive, really destructive internally. And I realised that, in fact, what hope was doing was focusing my, all of my attention on the place that I wanted to be mm. rather than the reality of the place that I was. And it was that difference between where I wanted to be back in my old life, running, having a wonderful job with wonderful friends in Nairobi, and the harsh reality of that concrete cell that was actually the thing that was becoming increasingly depressing. And so when I realised that actually I've got to give up that fantasy world and accept the reality of where I am and deal with what, what's in front of me, deal with these concrete walls, deal with this confinement, that was when I, I think I turned that corner. Mm. And that's when I understood that, that, that I need to make the most of the situation that I'm in now rather than hope for some, something that, is, that doesn't exist. That's a really fascinating contrast between sort of hope and preservation in a, in a way. Uh, Peter Grester, it's become more common these days for people to talk about the impact of reporting on traumatic events, particularly as a, as a foreign correspondent, whereas we've heard war stories is no metaphor when you're a, a foreign correspondent. You've got the double experience of then being imprisoned for a long period and becoming the centre of a, an international story. Uh, how did you go dealing with that? Gosh, well, yeah, it's it, going from reporting to the, being the subject of the story is never something that journalists want to do. Mm. Um, you you do your best to stay outside the story, to stay above it. Um, but I think there was a point at which I also realised, in fact, me and my colleagues discussed this quite a lot, that we realised that, in fact, the, our story was the way in which other people would understand what was going on, not just for us, but, for, but in Egypt more broadly, but also specifically around... Um, the media itself. The That's a very journalistic way to process it. <laughs> well, I guess it is, yeah. but, you know, it's about applying meaning to this stuff mm. um, and using that as a, as a, as a tool for telling what, what we saw and what I still see is a much bigger, much more important story, and that's the attacks on journalism as a, as a profession journal and, and, and the kind of ideas of truth and, and um, the role that journalists play in, in facilitating public debate. All of that, I think, is under assault at the moment. And that very much has become the focus of your work in more recent years. Did that experience in Egypt uh, cure you of the bug uh, for being a foreign correspondent? No. I, my <laughs> partner keeps keeps telling me that, um, in fact, if anything, giving up my career has probably been the harder thing to experience than, than prison itself. Oh, another trauma. It's <laughs> yes, exactly, a secondary trauma. Um, no, I, I still miss it a lot. Mm. Um, I, I don't think, well, I can't ever really go back to that kind of life. Um, I'm still a convicted terrorist. Um, and so travel is very difficult. The, the charges were never, or the, the, um, the, the prison sentence mm. um, was never overturned. Um, the acquittal was... I, I was never acquitted. And so I've got to be very careful about where I travel. 
Um, if I go to a country that has an extradition treaty with Egypt, then there's a great deal of risk associated with that, and that means a whole lot of countries that make it tough to work as a correspondent. Mm. Um, but I still feel as though there are... I've got a lot of stories to tell. I've, there are things that I... There are films I want to make. There are, there's a lot of issues I want to raise and explore. Um, you know, the whole beauty of being a foreign correspondent is to indulge your curiosity, and I've still got a lot of that. And stories still to tell. Peter Grester, it's been just fantastic speaking with you on The Year That Made You. Thank you so, so much for coming in uh, and coming into the studio in particular. We always finish The Year That Made Me by asking our guests for a piece of music. What have you chosen for us today? Because I know you struggled over this one. I, oh, God, <laughs> I hated this one because every time I thought I'd settled on a song, I, 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 I chucked it out and went for something else. In the end, I've gone for Chan Chan by Buena Vista Social Club. Um, I first discovered it in, in uh, the early 1990s when I was, sorry, late 1990s when I was a correspondent in Mexico. And um, Chan Chan was, is, is an absolutely extraordinary, vibrant, wonderful song that formed the, the, the soundtrack to a lot of my, my travels across Latin America. Um, and then it faded from memory until I went to Africa and realised just how much African rhythms had formed the basis of, of Latin music and mm. Cuban music in mm. particular and um, rediscovered the Buena Vista Social Club and again it accompanied a, you know, on a lot of very long, extraordinary road trips across that continent. Well, it will accompany us now uh, as well. Let's hear those rhythms. Peter Grester, again, thank you so much for being with us on The Year That Made Me. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jim. And here it is, Chan Chan. <laughs> That is Chan Chan by the Buena Vista Social Club playing there live at Carnegie Hall and that song was chosen by our guest on The Year That Made Me, Peter Grester, who is these days Professor of Journalism at Macquarie University and the Director of the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom where he does extraordinary work to help other journalists who have gone through similar experiences to the really horrific ones that uh, Peter experienced in Egypt in 2013 when he had 400 days of uh, incarceration. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.